um, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thanks very much for coming along today uh, to this uh, very important event. Uh, my name is Stephen Howes, and I'm the director of the Development Policy Centre based at the Crawford School, and uh, we're hosting the event today. So let me welcome you on behalf of the centre and uh, the Crawford School, and uh, let me also welcome you by saying that we acknowledge and celebrate uh, the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet, and we pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people past and present. Uh, as some of you might know, we've got a whole week of events on uh, this week, and uh, yesterday we had Paul Collier, and uh, today we've got Umi, and uh, if you're interested, uh, tomorrow we have Francois Bourguignon, who's a former chief economist at the World Bank, talking about globalisation and inequality. That's uh, also, I think, at uh, lunchtime, 12 o'clock actually, just uh, in the Barton Theatre down the corridor. And finally on Friday, we've got David Booth from ODI, another lunchtime address, talking about uh, political economy of development in Africa. So we've got a whole feast of uh, events on uh, today, uh, this week, but uh, you know this is really the highlight for me. So I'm not going to chair all of these events, but I was very keen to chair this one, actually. Um, so it's a, a real honor to be able to welcome Umi Wainetti to our school and our university and our center. Uh, she is the national coordinator of the PNG Family Sexual Violence Action Committee, and uh, that committee and Umi personally have sort of been leading the charge uh, in uh, responding to the, the serious problems of family sexual violence which um, PNG faces. So she uh, speaks uh, from uh, experience as well as uh, from her learning. And uh, I was delighted that she agreed. She uh, came to Sydney to talk at the Mining and Development Conference and uh, I was delighted that she agreed also to come down uh, to Canberra to speak uh, with us. And some of us have been uh, working with Umi, including uh, my colleague Kamalini. Is here somewhere? Oh, there you right. Kamalini Lokuge from NCEP, National Centre for Epidemiology, Population and Health. We're trying to get a project off the ground in LA uh, in relation to, uh, to this issue. And... Um, We've already benefited from uh, UMI's council, and I know others have heard her speak, uh, including Paul Collier yesterday, mentioned her as the highlight of the conference. So, uh, UMI, over to you. We're really looking forward to having you speak. Thank you very much for coming to cold Canberra, and um, over to you. So please welcome... Uh, so we've got an hour, and um, talk for half an hour, 40 minutes, and then we'll have... Let's. Sure, there'll be lots of questions, and... Issues to people want to raise. Thank you, Stephen, and thank you for this um, opportunity to come and tell you a bit about what's happening in Papua New Guinea, where violence is concerned with women. Um, the Family and Sexual Violence Action Committee was established in 2000, and this was because the women were saying. When we were celebrating independence, women were saying that we had nothing to, to celebrate, that we were being beaten, raped, and murdered. And so they decided that there should be a body established to work towards not eliminating, but reducing the violence that we see against women in the country. And the committee is made up of various sectors. We have NGOs in it, we have private sector, and government organizations are also member of the, members of the 
of the committee and there are 81 organizations who are members of the, of the Family and Sexual Violence Action Committee. Now, why do we call it, and we got, and through this network we have also established um, committees in the provinces. So we have provincial um, FSVACs, and now the provincial FSVACs are establishing district FSVACs. So why do we call this problem family and sexual violence when we should just say it's gender-based? We call it family and sexual violence because when we talk about gender-based, mostly we see that with intimate partners, as intimate partners violence. And it let fall through, through the cracks. The other violence that is also very much seen in our families. And that's where our brothers beat us up and kill us, and nobody reports them to police. This is where we, we get pregnant and we get booted by our fathers because we get, got pregnant from uh, men they disapprove of. We die and nobody reports. You ask police, they have no records of such violence. So we do have honor killings in Papua New Guinea that is not reported. So that sort of violence, we thought that if we say family violence, because all these things are seen in the, in the family, and also the way we have changed. Um, many of you know that we lived, um, we lived with, uh, women live with, girls live with their mothers, while the sons live with their fathers. And what we now see coming together, living as a family, as in the modern societies, we see also a lot of violence in our own families. Incest, things like that have really come up. So a lot of um, children are affected by this violence. And also in this violence, we're talking about, we have been now asked by the new laws, government have signed like CRC, CEDO. We are now being asked to change the way we live. Like in Papua New Guinea, we have patrilineal society. So I think many of us here are from patrilineal society. But then we have matrilineal societies where first cousin's marriage is allowed. And so you have um, not, not, like if Steve was my, Stephen was my, my brother, his son would marry my daughter to retain land within the family. So incest, in that sense was allowed for us to retain land. And that's the sort of thing now the new laws are telling us to change. So when we're talking about family and sexual violence, you're also addressing our own way of life that we are now expected to change. So it's not so easy. And then you have another violence that has nothing to do with families. And that is just violence against women because they are vulnerable. And this is where violence like social related killings that have recently been reported and everybody is not happy with Papua New Guinea for that. So um, I was telling um, Steve that this is where sometimes we don't understand what stalking is. What is that word for rubbish I was trying to think of? Loitering. Loitering, yeah. We don't understand these things. So women 
not knowing these things will not report that somebody is talking here. She probably swears that men who later mobilized people to kill her. So, you know, a lot of misunderstanding of, of these things have contributed to the violence we are seeing. We are real changing, moving away from our own way of life, our cultures that are now changing, now making men um, feel that they have no control over us, over us, the women. A lot of Papua New Guinean men are sitting here. I think sometimes they feel like that. They can argue with me later, but not now. <laughs> and then we have this understanding that we are comfortable with is that it is okay for my husband to hit me if I am wrong, because that is accepted by us. And a lot of women are comfortable with that, that it is okay. That's his right to beat me. Or I provoke him and I keep saying these things to him. And so it is okay that he hit me. And because now it's my fault, he's going to marry another woman. And you know what they do in Papua New Guinea, in some parts of Papua New Guinea? He asks his wife to give permission for him to marry another woman. And then she helps him to pay bride price for him. Now, she is now put into the position of a sister and a mother. You know, the thing in Papua New Guinea is, our men mature physically, but mentally they're still our sons. Our teenage sons who behave like small boys. They want it all, and they don't take responsibility for what they put. We, know, we are ignorant of the mental pain we give. And so when a woman goes long, long, what's long, long in English? Um, okay. When a woman goes uh, mad, or, you know, it's puri-puri, it's, it's uh, sorcery, that's why she's like that. It's never the husband's fault. And sometimes we women, Papua New Guinea women, we believe that, um, when my husband hits me, it shows that he loves me. Ask those men sitting, maybe they'll confirm. Unfortunately, they came to listen to me, so they'll have to uh, they, we, we believe that he's, he's hitting me, he's stopping me from doing all these things, from dressing up, from looking, looking pretty, because he's jealous. So it's nice, he should be jealous, so I, I'll just do what he wants. And many times you'll see even our highly educated women continue to live their lives through the husband because all they do is live for the husband. Everything is around him. But tomorrow when he walks out, he leaves her with nothing. And many times we make excuses, like culture is an excuse now many of our men use for the violence that we see. Alcohol and drugs too. Oh, sorry, I was drunk. But he didn't hit another man in the, in the club before he came home. He didn't fight another man on the road. He just came home to hit his wife. And so 
our own understanding of the myths of domestic violence, we confused it ourselves and we continue to accept to live like that. Somebody asked me why, like India, we didn't mobilize and protest as a nation of women. We couldn't. 800 different languages, how can we mobilize ourselves to do that? We can't do that. And even if we send out information, written information, or even on TVs and radios, not everybody, majority of our people don't listen to those things, and 68% of our women are illiterate. So how can we reach them? And so the story goes on of the plight of women. Whether we are living in mining areas, whether we're living in towns or we're just in the villages or we're in the towns because our husbands are working there, that is the story of our life. Our statistics show that the study that was done in, in the 90s by Law Reform Commission showed that 68% of the women experience physical violence. And with the recent data that has come out, 50% of the women are raped in their own homes. And raping is, some of these, our women in marital rapes have lived for 26, 30 years, accepting husbands shoving cassava into the vaginas. All sorts of things that these women have gone through and only a percentage have now come out complaining about such rapes in the family, because in, in the marriage, because many of them believe that that's supposed to be her. You know how they say, you people say, English, you made your bed, you lie in it. So many of them are living like that. And even when we take it, because the only law now available in the country is the assault laws. We're now working on the Family Protection Bill, which we hope, NEC has passed it, so we hope, um, what's this month? They said it would go through in May, but I think maybe it will come later now. I didn't hear about it. Hopefully that law will go through so that we can actually take men, to, oh, not just men, whoever is violence, causing violence to court and the various uh, headings that come under domestic violence. And what we are now seeing happening is the sexual violence, 95, 98% of the women who see a lot of sexual violence, whether it's gang rape or rape in the home or rape by brother-in-law or raped by um, father or stepfather, the age group we are seeing it with is between the age of five to 19. Five-year-olds to 19. And the other thing that we are now seeing is because the status of women is so low, um, what we are seeing is the lack of interest also by parents 
to make sure that they have opportunities for their daughters. And so many young girls marry at very early age. And so in Papua New Guinea, I think many of you who know, know that we have out of every 100,000 births, 733 women die. And a doctor told us that many of these women die during childbirth or 24 hours after childbirth. And that's because many of our women are either having babies because if you, if you go to like Kainantu Hospital and you walk around saying hello to all the young girls who are there. In fact, if you're 30, 28 years old and you're there to give birth, you're, you feel like an old woman sitting next to girls who are 14, 15, 17. And by the time they're 21 years old, they already have three children. So the problems that we are seeing is so bad that our support services are really minimum. I was assisted by American government and I went to um, America to observe the services that they offer. I think the services in Australia are not good, so I went to uh, America. <laughs> and what I saw there was, I mean, goodness me, we don't, we can't even offer that to our women. It was a waste of time to go there. We need to look at what we can offer ourselves. Right now, we have family support centers that we have established where battered women and children go to for medical treatment and immediate psychosocial support. That's what we have. And, uh, and that's only those who are willing to go there. So like in the last, since we established uh, those centers, we've seen over 12,000 women who have gone through, and there are about 15 of those in the country now. And we have police who have established um, family violence units. So women going to police station are assisted. But then, like I said, um, these centers are not everywhere. Like Port Mosby have three. There's one in Rabal, Hagen, um, Kundiawa, uh, Vanima, I think. Otherwise, it's not everywhere. And we have very safe houses. This is a refuge, but we don't really, there's one, two in Port Mosby that can only take up to 10 women. And we have one in Alatau that takes up to, can accommodate four women. And the one in Lay we have, I think, just take one woman at a time because Salvation Army is just providing a room there. So when they can, they are able to. So when, with, with the sort of problems we are seeing, we do not have services to provide to these people. So it makes, um, makes it more difficult for us to reach our people, to, to give them the sort of support that we need to give. So some of the gaps 
I'll, I will stop soon because you, I'll give you time to ask. Maybe a lot of things then will come out of my head. Um, some of the things that we urgently need to do is heavy services for men. Because even when a man can have erection, he blames his wife and beats her up. And so we need men to understand also their own health problems. And women to understand that. And most women get beaten because, oh, today I work so hard and, but he still want to have sex. So I say, no, I get beaten up. And so sometimes there was a report that was written and, and they said, um, Papua New Guinea women don't give enough sex to their men. That's why they get raped. That's why they get beaten up. Excuse me, it's still making us responsible for the problem still blaming us as women. And so some international organization came and started teaching us how we should have sex when we are pregnant, what positions. Uh, to me, that was an insult. So we need to have services for men. We got about a thousand men now trained as male advocates. And we need to do more work to help to change men's behavior and for them to educate each other. We have family support centers and we are getting support to roll them out throughout the country and also for the safe houses, very um, safe houses. But what is really lacking is our skills to manage cases so that good and proper assistance are given to survivors. For instance, when I traveled to Kundiwa and I went to Kerawagi, I met two children who were five, four and five year old girls. They were pack raped and now they're living with HIV. If the, their cases were managed properly and they had received that medicine they're supposed to take for, I think, 28 days, they wouldn't have got HIV. It would have been prevented. But nobody was responsible because the mothers are living in the rural areas and far from where we have uh, for transportation to bring their daughters in every day for that medicine. The whole thing was forgotten, and the two young girls are now living with HIV. And we have stories of so many of our women who we have treated at the family support centers and also at, um, also at um, kept them at the safe house. We sent them back and they were murdered. So we, we, that's because we lack the facility and the skills to manage the cases properly so that we see proper assistance given to these women before they are resettled back to the communities. So that is one big problem we have now trying to, um, trying to uh, provide for, for these people. And connecting this service to our community advocates who are on the ground. We have community advocates, and these are people we have trained who are first people to intervene when a woman is abused. Because what we're seeing is 
you know our Papua New Guinean men, when they have money, they, they bring other women, they, they come with the money to Mosby or to Lay, and they take women back. And these other women, we, our internal trafficking is bad in the country. The trafficking of women. And we don't even have services for women like this. So the case management for, for referrals and for repatriation is also very important. That we need to have family support center, safe house, and a management, case management center from which we can have these cases uh, managed properly. I think I talked too long. Um, just one other thing I want to say. Our biggest, other biggest problem is, we, I'm, I'm, I was, may have been joking with my friends who are from Papua New Guinea here, but seriously, we need to, to not just, uh, we need advocacy strategy that can be taken up by both men and women at national level and people educated for us to move as a nation. We're still operating, and that's the reason why when you come, sometimes I, I personally used to say to people, what you do here may not work there. Because just by speaking different language, how many of us are here, I think we all speak different language. That's why we either speak in pidgin or we speak in English to each other. Just by speaking different languages make us different. And so when we are trying to do programs, um, we need to start looking at how we can create this awareness so that we can start bringing people together to, for us to start thinking as a nation instead of thinking of, of what we do in our little pockets in tribal areas or language areas. I'll leave it at that and you can ask me questions. How do I show this thing? I'll show you some of the pictures of... of um, oh, you can, yeah, actually you can use this one. I just want to show you yeah. some of the, the the abuses that are reported at the at the hospital and how that's a mother after being beaten up had to go to labor. That's the sort of thing we see daily. Teeth marks. There are now people who leave children and they don't feel responsible for them. We, I used to say that my generation of women had concern for children. Even when the husband walks out, she stays with the children. Now our, we are seeing our daughters also walking out and leaving their families behind. And we don't even have a social protection policy that would protect vulnerable children like this. And one time there was a question of, um, question of um, 
legalizing prostitution. I don't know what's the word they use. Um, something, but it's still legalizing, I think. Yeah, that word. Um, and they brought a married woman whose husband deserted and she had become a prostitute to support her family. That to me is not justified because government should have responsibility to provide for a woman like that and her children, not bring her to tell us that justify this thing because she is now a prostitute. There's people coming for support. In some parts of the country you go to, you find women with no noses, husbands Try, try to make them look ugly. Parts of their lips are cut off to make them look ugly. Even breaking arm is not enough. We wait to be murdered. 90% of our women in the jails, 98% of our women in the jails are for murder of their husbands or other women. We've had, uh, we've had a lot of children who have also died while we, running, mothers running with the children and um, husband, you know, want to hit the mother, instead also kills the, son, the child too. In many parts of Papua New Guinea, women will not go to hospitals for assistance. They just go to other women to help them. And many of these women don't have the skills to help them. Yeah. So I'll leave it at that. And if you have any questions, I'll be happy to answer questions. Thank you very much. Um, in terms of advocacy, some of the best advocates are women themselves if they have the political power to do so. Would you comment on representation of women in the Papua New Guinea Parliament, please? After Dank, Para Padu, the only woman for so many years, uh, retired. We vigorously campaigned with assistance from OSAID and, and UNDP uh, trying to push through the reserve seats bill through the, through the parliament. The parliament voted for the, parliament voted for the um, change of legislation for the constitution to be changed, but the enabling act did not go through. And because of that campaign, we had three women voted into the parliament. One is now the governor for Eastern Highlands. The other one is open member for Ley, and the other is open member for Sohe electorate. Unfortunately, the three women do not 
support the bill anymore. And what Prime Minister said when he was launching the uh, gender equality and social inclusive policy for public service, he said, we already have three women in parliament, we cannot put this on the shelf. So that's where it is. But we also have 600 women who have been appointed under the organic law on provincial governments. And these women are appointed into provincial assemblies, into LLGs, and into what, what level, what committees. Unfortunately, these women cannot really represent us because they need help. It's like I, some are like bed you put without hands and legs, they talk. Some are brain dead, they don't do anything, they just go there. So we need a lot of assistance to help because that's where the difference will happen if we enable these women to really represent us. Thanks, nice to me. That was fantastic. It's nice to Potential there, and I, you know, uh, there is big need to gender sensitize the men at that level. But because many of the men at that senior level, whether they are senior public servants or politicians, many of them are also perpetrators. They try to avoid being part of these programs because it means, uh, like one time we had um, a governor for. Um, Enna, who came to close the workshop for health workers at Wabek, he said, you know, everything you said here, I am one of them. I'm doing all these things. I mean, he admitted to it, but he's not willing to change. So there, that, that's a, the other thing is, you know, with that sort of thing, we, we don't have role models at national level for younger people to look up to and say, he is like this, I'm going to change to be like that. Yeah, so it's not easy. Usually we invite people like that for, for these type of trainings and they refuse to come. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I'll be careful with that, not to cause any trouble. Um, but it, I kept nodding all the way through everything you said. It was so true, so true when I was there working with you 15, 20 years ago. But on the other hand, those thousand, the point you made, those thousand men, when I went to the Southern Highlands, when we were working with the police, with my female police friend, um, the, the man in charge beat up his wife and in the night she ca came to get help from us. But in the daytime, the second in command volunteered to drive me, brought his wife and said he couldn't speak up in front of his boss, but they were trying to work together to have less violence themselves and that a church group had come, and several of them had taken part, and then he laughed and said, and the leader said to us, if you want to beat your wife, 
instead of doing that, go for a walk. And he turned around and said to me, look how healthy I am, I'm walking all the time. <laughs> and she laughed and hugged him, and I felt here was like those thousand men. So it's really just following up that point. Uh, we all know the dreadful things. They can weigh on our minds. But here and there, you see some wonderful initiative that you're doing. How can we make that initiative more successful? Yeah, like I said, we, we have a lot of good men, and some have fallen along the way, but they are there and they're doing good work. Like one of them is called Stella at uh, Alatal, and when we had um, National Women's Day on the 24th of March, he made all the good men wear what, merry dresses and they marched <laughs> on their own. So I, I, we, we also have to be very careful when we are advocating for these things because um, we, had, uh, we had, with UNICEF assistance, put together all the top women in Papua New Guinea photographs together, trying to encourage young women to aspire to be like them. Okay, we distributed that throughout the country. And one time I traveled to, um, to one of the rural areas and there were all these posters, but in the men's bedroom, boys' bedrooms. They were admiring those beautiful women. Yeah, so we have to be very careful what, what messages we are given. And you know, like, like sometimes uh, our status is already very low, but then we see advertisements that come. I don't know if you've seen it. Like the one that the old rent one that go bomb chica wawa or something, yeah. And you, you showed that is shown almost, you know, all the time on our TV. And a woman is going crazy just because she smelled uh, this perfume or deodorant or what you call it. Yeah. And goodness me, we already have really low status, and here is. Um, deodorant that makes us behave like animals towards men. Where does that leave us? So, I don't know, I've been telling them to take that thing off, but they don't want to listen to me. I know, but no Papua New Guinea buys it because they don't have money to buy it. So, I don't know why they keep uh, advertising it. Yes. Um, I'm also you know, very in touch by these, these issues and um, working on an indigenous base Australia, there's a lot of very unfortunately similar circumstances. For PNG and perhaps for the other other uh, places in the Pacific, that this is still a major problem. I would <coughs> encourage AusAid and UNDP and other places to base their funding, or for women in countries to base their funding on lower on indicators that this gender violence and family violence is declining, and so that may be an incentive for men who don't seem to have a value on their own self-esteem and certainly on the behaviours that they, they show to their families. But my question is the role of churches. I think you brought up the issue of churches. There's this duality, I know, of a very strong faith-based culture and yet, at the same time, absolutely you know, very difficult to violence against women. Apart from Catholic Church, the other churches are now just coming on board. Anglican Church came on board a lot more with HIV. But United Church, SD, and others are just coming on board now to uh, to talk on GBV. But our, the, the problem now is really trying to train them so that 
they are saying the right things and not uh, telling us to go back and be good wives. Yeah. Because many women who have been told to go back to, or go, you know, you come beaten, all beaten up, you can't see properly, and then you're told that uh, go back and be a good wife and pray that he will change. Because there, we, there, there was once women's meeting and women are coming home laughing and um, I asked him, hey, what's so funny, you're all laughing. The, one of my friends said to me, or oh, one of our friends asked us to pray, he does, she doesn't want her husband to sleep with her. And, and so I said to her, why don't you go back and tell her to go to the nuns to help her because next prayer point will be for you to pray for her husband to sleep with her because he will go look for another woman. So very simple things our women are still struggling with. So, you know, like a lot of our women don't see the connection because what also happens is uh, when our women have infection, they don't even go for assistance. Instead, they refuse to have that sexual relationship with the husbands instead of seeking assistance. And so uh, our other biggest problem is that communication that happens, that should happen between husband and wife for them to have that understanding. You know, to tell him properly, I'm not feeling well when you sleep with me, you know, so she can go for assistance. But no, she just refused, so he, or, or, or he, she, in fact, you'll be surprised that there are women who turn a blind eye because she can't, she doesn't want to have sexual relationship that relationship with her husband anymore, so she allows him to get into relationship with another woman or even to rape their own daughter. Yes. Um, just, thanks for your talk, it's been great. Just, I think something we all need to remember is, I think in camp for this bit, five or six services um, for domestic and family violence, so it's not, it's a problem that we share with you too. It's not just um, what's, what are you doing with women with disabilities? Is one question You know, in the family support centres, I'm ashamed to say because it was to the Canberra meeting that I came when one of the disabled women shamed us, told us all to stand up and said, reminded us that she has told us her story, that how she was in the ward and. Um, um, she goes every day to check the roster to see when that oddly will come on duty because he rapes her every night he's on duty. And, and so what I want to say is that we lack skills to provide services. That's one of the gaps we have is providing skills for the disabled, even for the blind, because most times these are the people who get uh, raped. Even though the, under the Family Support Center, um, transgenders will be treated there, but we have not have skills developed yet to, uh, you know, like we, we, we advocate, but we don't know how to do sign languages so our women who can't hear can know what we are talking about. Or those who are blind come, we don't know how to help them. And that's why to us, Having a case management center is very important because it will help us 
to deal with a lot of these things. You're here, and then. Thank you very much for um, your talk. I think from the way that you were talking about the different things that are required, it's, it, the need is so wide and in so many different areas. So you've talked about the need for basic services to help women who, who um, are survivors of family violence, but then also the need to advocate for cultural change and, and all of those things. And I'm just wondering if you have some sort of roadmap or some idea about if resources do come how you would like to prioritise and how you would like to see it roll out. Because it seems to me that what you're saying about even just providing basic services tells the community that these women matter and that they're... And that they, they're we've, got a, we've got a strategy that we are implementing. But I think our bigger problem will be convincing those who need to provide these services that they need to provide it. You know, like... Um, for instance, like it took us how many years to convince health department that they needed to establish family support centers for people to be treated. And for police to even establish the um, family violence units. Or for even, even now we're talking about establishing men's desks. It means working with provincial governments at, at provincial level to help us to do that. So even when we have, we know what we want to do, um, we cannot do it on our own. We need to work with others to make it happen. So that's where our biggest problem is. Can I ask you a question uh, about the village court magistrate program? When I left Papua New Guinea three years ago, the number of village female village court magistrates was increasing quite significantly. Uh, I just wondered if that's having any beneficial impact on gender violence and whether you work with them. <coughs> village courts, yeah, we've increased the number of um, women, especially in the southern highlands, in some of the highland provinces in southern highlands and in Emma the number of village courts, their women's representation have been increased and also in the Eastern Highlands. Um, but still it's not having the sort of impact we would like to see. It's still a very small number compared to the number of men who are there. Um, usually they get criticized and we have been at the forefront of criticizing them too. But we also realize that sometimes in those remote areas, they are the only authority that need to make decisions to maintain peace. So sometimes they allow for like rape, 100 kina to be paid or 50 kina for rape so that there is peace maintained in the community so that we don't kill each other. Yeah, so um, we have to make allowance for things like that, even though it is wrong. And anyway, if you're going to tell somebody from like, um, from Tapini that village court, this is not under our jurisdiction to address, you, that means these women have to get on that track and come down all the way to Port Mosby for district court to hear her case. And it depends on her having money to go down there. So it's not, it's not so easy 
Yeah, efforts are being made. We've had the gender uh, training manual with OSED and UNICEF <coughs> assistance was looked at for gender issues to be included into their trainings, but we're still long way with that one, yeah. Yes. Is there a safe house for teenage girls for sexual abuse or stepfathers and fathers? Because I've lived in public youth, uh, for most of 13 years, and now initially it's running a school where we have 130 students. But some of the teenage girls are facing really difficult time at home because they've been sexually abused by we have is um, house roof that can now take up to probably nine women. And we have um, um, lifeline that takes up to four, four or six women. So There's no, yeah, the e-craft safe house has been closed. And, and um, usually when we take in girls like that, it's not for long. And that's why, you know, like, I, I, I keep bringing back this, this what we are looking at having a management place. Because if we have a case management center, at least it can look out outside of what is there, probably to sponsor the girls to go and live in the boarding school or, or something, but not sending them back. We had a case where, uh, and this is our own misunderstanding also of how child abuse happened. And a lot of us, seeing our man marrying one girl go past certain age and now he's married another girl. And we did, many of us never realized that that is child abuse. And so it, I only realized this when this case came to us because the two sisters have now forced the mother to report the father. Because he abused the big sister and then the second one and now the younger one was coming up, so he was not interested in her because he was interest, interested in that age group, age girls. And so they came to report to us, and the father was arrested. Now, they were, we had no way to support the family. We didn't have resources to give support to the family, and we couldn't refer them to government also because government had nothing to offer. And so the woman in the end decided, the mother decided to drop the case against the father and they went back to that abusive home. Because we didn't have money to even send the, the girls to boarding school. So, you know, like one time I was talking with Judge Davani and she said to me, uh, Ume, what do I do? I make decision here you know, to punish the father but the child still goes back to the abusive home. So we, we have no facilities for children. 
and we don't have a mechanism to a facility to which we can say refer the child there or the woman there and let that that center manage the case to find other assistance so that child protection things could be properly accessed for the children. Yes. Sorry, what was the first one? I was. Um, what was? Do they do they, uh, dependent they support themselves? Yeah. Okay. When in the rural areas, you know, I can tell the men to go and jump because I till the land, I plant things, and I am independent. But then, but many of our women are now living in urban areas where they're totally now dependent on the husband's income. And this is where the problems happen. And that's why many women have murdered other women because they've suffered. They, the man takes the money and give it to the other woman. And so when you find out that you've suffered so much because he's been giving money to another woman, usually that woman kills another woman or kills the man. With empowerment, we're doing a lot of that work. Um, like, like there is a cleaner who's at uh, at Pogera, Pogera Women's um, Women's Association. Where we ran gender empowerment, gender program there for the for the women leaders, and this cleaner attended. And what I what what happened recently was that when her sister was murdered. She, instead of allowing her tribe and the other tribe to fight, she went and got restraining orders. Restraining orders and went and gave that to both tribes and told them that not to fight, but she wanted the men who killed her sister to go to court. And then she, had, because the court sent this young fellow to jail for 30 years, her life was threatened, and she went back to the leaders of the, of the boys' clan tribe and told them that if anything happened to me, I am not going to take the young people who killed me to court. I will take you to court for harming me. And that's a sort of just being given the training to know that these are the laws, this is what you should do, and this woman is illiterate went and did that thing. Even I was surprised. I rang up and I asked her, Evelyn at the, at the center, hey, what happened? Oh, this is what happened. This is, she attended this training and now she's done this. So there are things that live with empowerment that happen. Like when we had the reserve seat thing going through, we had a lot of uh, opposition by men in the parliament. Like some said, all these 20 women will come and we are going to all have sex in the parliament. Like they don't have plenty wives. Yeah. 
and, and so there are two people who are really vocal speaking against that, that uh, bill. They're no longer in the parliament. The women removed them. Good. <laughs> you can't be a national leader and sit there and say things like that about another half of the population. So we mobilized and we removed them. And that's because you said we did gender trainings with people, women, and we had empowered them to know that we can do that. So there are pockets of success where we are seeing things like this happening. I remember when the results came, I text my boss and say, three cheers to the women of Papua New Guinea, we threw these two men out. <laughs> and that's the governor for uh, Western province and the open member for Lake. we got rid of. And we also, as, a, as women also, through the network, we sent Madame Governor to jail. There's a lot of men here who have read that story, Papua Guinean men. Governor who raped his own sister-in-law. And because of empowerment and the network that we have established in the provinces, the brother took her to the hospital where the doctor who saw her was trained by us. And then the doctor referred her to the police officer who was at the police station we had trained. The magistrate was part of the network also. So even when the sister was, the, the, the victim was moved by the mother to Rabaul, we had partners there who moved her back to Madang for the court here. So there is that network of people working, but we need assistance to strengthen what we are doing still, especially providing skills. Because when I was talking about the case management, I'd like that to be developed so that our, when we had Family Support Center established as best practice in Lay, we sent people throughout Papua New Guinea from the hospitals to go there for training. And now we need to have another best practice for case management established in Lay also, so that we can send people there also to be trained. All right, I'm afraid uh, we are out of time. Thanks. So, uh, I, mean, I think I've never seen an audience uh, so spellbound. Um, thank you very much, so much for sharing that with us. We are working on this case management center, Camelini uh, myself, uh, with Ilme, and if anyone's interested in that, we'd be happy to talk to you afterwards. But uh, for now, uh, thank you all for coming, and please join with me. In-